Seven Seconds or Less Podcast. This is a podcast about the NBA with a Phoenix Suns focus. My name is Max McCauley and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. His name is David Nash. David, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, Max, and uh, joined by another guest today, which I'm, I'm really excited about. It's taken us a, a while to, to match this one up, but uh, glad we're going to get stuck into it. Yeah, I'm pumped about it, too. We, we finished up our positional pod series, and we're sort of entering the dark days of the offseason, but... Players and teams never sleep. The NBA is always grinding. So we wanted to bring on someone who can talk to us a little bit about how those teams and NBA players grind. He is the founder of the jumpball.net and a former NBA video coordinator for the Los Angeles Clippers, San Antonio Spurs, and Australian men's basketball, very close to David's heart. His name is Mo Dakil. Mo, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How about yourselves? Doing well. Doing well. We're really excited to have you on for this one because this is kind of a unique topic. And we, before we get into it, we kind of wanted to ask you maybe to give a little more background on yourself. Like I obviously gave your Twitter bio, but is there anything you like want to talk about, maybe your background or the kind of the skills it's given you that may be relevant to a conversation about how NBA players and teams develop throughout the summer? Yeah, I think I just want to go briefly into like what a video coordinator does. You know, they're, they're involved in everything from obviously breaking down film and, and, and getting it ready for players and coaches to helping the front office prepare for the draft. We're involved in practices. We're involved, you know, we're on the court, you know, before practice, after practice, rebounding and, and doing all that fun stuff on the court work with, with our development staff and coaches to help the players all together. So we're kind of, you're almost like a utility man when you're a video coordinator, which I think is why... I can, I can kind of speak on a lot of different su- subjects about the way an NBA organization is ran. Right. I'm glad you gave that background because I think a lot of people have the image of a video coordinator just kind of being stuffed in a closet watching film all day, but you're really integrated with the team. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, I mean, you, you are. You are stuck in the closet all day when practice isn't going on, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that stuff. But there's a whole aspect of it that kind of doesn't get talked about too much. Um, and even my own fault in doing that just because we kind of just get stuck in, in – in the film analysis of things. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're involved in everything to a degree. Well, yeah, we're excited to get into that because you're going to have obviously some awesome insight into how players and teams develop. Before we get into any of that stuff, David, do you want to give us a little did you know? I do, Max. So with Mo joining us for this pod, it would be remiss of me not to bring up his time with my country's national team, the Australian Boomers. Mo started with the team in 2010 and worked right through to the 2012 Olympics in London, where I happened to live at the time and was lucky enough to attend two games. So Max, I'll put you on the spot first. Did you know the Phoenix Suns had an active member of a team in the Olympics? Can you name who that might have been? Any, so any country's Olympic team? Any national team. Not making it easy for you. It wasn't tragic, was it? 
Was that when he was with Houston? It was not. It was Louis Scola for Argentina. He actually mm. signed with the Suns on July 15 of that year and played his first game at the Olympics on July 29. Scola was actually amnestied by the Rockets and quickly snapped up by the Suns. Again, to put you on the spot, and Mo, I'll bring you on this one too. Who did the Suns use their amnesty provision on back when that was a thing? Max, have you got an idea first? I think I know, but I'll let Mo give a guess. Oh, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you would have any idea. I barely, I might have this totally wrong, but it seems like it might be Josh Childress, if my memory serves. It is Josh Childress, who signed a five-year, $33.5 million contract and also recently spent time in the local Australian League. Back to the Olympics now, though. While Scola was the only active member, there were also several others with ties to Phoenix. Boris Dior played for France, Barbosa played for Brazil, and a couple of Suns draft picks who never made it to Phoenix in Deng for Great Britain and Rudy Fernandez for Spain. Anyway, I got to see Louis Scola play along with Ginobili, Prigioni, Delfino, and Nocioni as Argentina crushed Nigeria. Scola actually top scored in that game with 22 points. The other game I watched that day involved Mo and my country. Australia smashed the host nation 106 to 75. Paddy Mills top scored that night. Mo, to put you on the spot, any guesses how many points he had? Oh, no, I, but I remember that game. I think, God, he had something like 29 or something. Close. You got the nine right. He actually had 39. Wow. I, I won't forget it because that was a game where we started out poorly. And if we didn't win, we weren't going to move on. We were going to get eliminated in the pool round. Yep. So we had to win that game and had really yep. a hell of a comeback in the second half. Um you know, Mills went off, Delva Doba had a hell of a game. I remember that one pretty well. Yeah, it was a good one. Paddy actually topped the whole tournament for points with 21.2 a game in what was a top 10 featuring all NBA players. Durant was second, Ginobili was third, followed by Pau Gasol, Scola, Kirilenko, Carmelo, Barbosa, Deng, and Tony Parker. The Boomers, as we call them, Mo, advanced to the knockout stage, as you said but had no luck drawing the USA in the quarterfinal matchup. The Aussie team was coached by current Sixers head coach Brett Brown and also featured Ingles, Della Vidova, Aaron Baines, plus Paddy Mills. The USA team actually had a current member of the Suns on their team, but it's a pretty easy one, so I won't quiz either of you on that one. It was, of course, Tyson Chandler. Max, on August 9th, your mob defeated Mo and, and I's team with a 119-86 result. Uh, LeBron had a cool 11-11-14 triple-double and, of course, went on to win the gold medal with further wins over Scola and the Argentines and then the Gasols of Spain. But, Mo, I wanted to end quickly by asking you about Joe Ingles. Ingles had 19-8-6 in that final game against the U.S. and still didn't make it over to the NBA for another two years. What do you remember back from 2012 with Joe? I remember thinking it was already a little too late then, and he was kind of, I think, only 24 at the time. So was it obvious he he still felt he could play in the NBA at some point? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, Coach Brown and I often would have conversations going like, Joe's an NBA player, right? Hmm. Like, he can play in this league. And I think we both walked away from that USA game going like, yeah, he he definitely can. And, And a funny side story of it was, I was with the Clippers at the time, and I remember calling 
one of my buddies in the front office saying like, yo, we got to get Joe. Like, you know, he'd make a huge difference for us. And and the problem was the way the cap was set up. I don't remember the rules exactly and, and all of that. So don't anybody well actually me after the fact. But <laughs> I, there was something about we could NBA teams could only offer him. And it, it was like less than a million dollars. And he was making way more than that at, at, at Barcelona. So there was like, there's no way he's coming yep. over this year. He ended up coming over the next year or, or two years later with the Clippers, but I had already left uh, the the organization. So I, I kind of missed Joe by a matter of a few months, but we knew coach Brown and I both then were, were well aware of Joe's ability to be able to play in the NBA. And, and that USA game really did kind of show how, how skilled he was and how he could, he did a great job defending those guys and, and played really well and, and playmaking wise. And to be honest, we kind of had we were, we had the USA sweating a bit. It, it was up until you know Kobe just decided to go off, and at that yep. point he was old man yep. Kobe on that <laughs> squad. But we we had them. We we were in the game. Like don't don't people kind of forget about it. But we were in the game up until you know maybe midway through the third or, or the beginning of the fourth, if, if my memory holds up. And, and Kobe just kind of started to hit a few shots. But we were we were right in it at that end and, and Joe was a big part of that yeah he, uh, it sounded like he needed you in his corner at that that second time with the Clippers uh, you know he, he ended up getting cut and I'm sure they still regret that decision but worked out great for him now <laughs> yes it did that's very true Max that's it for did you know this week I had to give it a, a bit of Aussie flavor with some Phoenix stuff thrown in there so over to you to get stuck into the episode no that was awesome and I'd actually like to ask Mo one follow-up because that's it's a great subject you touched on Mo, so there's this general stereotype among most countries that the players can sometimes be intimidated by the United States. Then there's this other sort of this thing out there that the Australian guys aren't even a little bit intimidated by the United States. Do you, is, in your experience in the international circuit, is that is that all true? Like the Australian guys just not really care? Is that is that kind of why you guys were able to stick with them for so long? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I love the Australians, and, and they have a sense of pride, and, and they're not afraid of anybody. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even before that game, you know, when they played the U.S. in 2008, you know, they they weren't afraid. Now, they, it may not have turned out the way they wanted then. It, I, I don't remember. I don't believe that game was that close, but... You know they're, they're they're just not afraid. There's a level of confidence. They know who they are, and and that's kind of a cultural thing. I mean, David can speak to that too. You know, you just kind of have that attitude of just like, no, that's fine. That's who you are, but this is who we are, and and we're going to be us. Um, and and that's kind of something you, you you see from the Australians, and and, and it kind of carries over to the Australian national team. Yeah, I think us as a general public love it, love an underdog story, and. Uh, I definitely feel that that comes with the the national basketball team. They they love being the underdogs and they they love taking it up to some of those bigger teams, particularly the U.S. Well, that's just awesome. That, what a cool story and uh, just part of why Mo is a perfect guest here because we're gonna we're gonna get into the development of NBA players, NBA teams, all that stuff during the summer because we think that's you know that's kind of an apropos topic for this time. We'll focus a little bit on the Suns players. We'll also just just kind of ask Mo generally about how the players. Developed during the summer, you know, what they do, do they watch film, do they train, do they train on their own, do they have their teams have training programs for them? So we're, we're really excited to get into this. We are, and, and before we do, I just wanted to, to throw to Mo one more time with his, you know, kind of backstory. He gave himself a pretty good intro there, but I, I will touch on, you know, his time with the Spurs was, you know, between 09 and 11, and with Manu Ginobili recently retiring, Mo, I, I just wanted to, to say, you know, I'm sure Suns fans are happy to see the back of Manu, but... Yeah, we finally got the Spurs in 09 with that 4-0 sweep in the, I believe, 
Western Conference semis. You know, have you got a, a typical Manu story, maybe one with with the Suns or, or maybe something more general? Well, you know, the thing about Manu, you know, everybody knows all the stuff on the court and whatnot, but Manu is just kind of a, a practical joker, and, and he likes to play around with, with people. And I've told the story before on Twitter, I think last year when I actually – I actually thought he was going to retire last year, uh, so I might have jumped the gun. Yeah. But it was my first road trip with the Spurs. Uh, I was an assistant video guy, so I was, you know, still new to the team and everything. And you know, you like I said, you do stuff on the court. You you have the projector going in the locker room before the game. You know, with the, uh, whatever game we have on, and then you get ready for the pregame film and everything. And I noticed just before the pregame film started, or just before we were about to start the the pregame meeting that the projector wasn't on and there, there was no, the projector was on, but there was no actual screen coming to the, to the light. And I, you know, I start panicking and I'm freaking out and I'm getting nervous and I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm, I totally screwed up the first road trip. I'm never going to be allowed on a road trip again. You know, you start kind of just having these panics. And then I just kind of out of the corner of my eye glance and I just see Manu giggling like a hyena, <laughs> you, you know, watching me and just dying laughing. And I kind of look at him and I'm like, what did you do? Because you did something. Like, now I'm now I'm suspicious. And, of course, what did he do? He just put the cap on the projector, <laughs> which is probably the last thing I would have thought of at that moment because I was panicking. But, you know, I, I realized that and I pulled the cap off and I just threw it at him and I was just like, you jerk. But that's Manu. You know, Manu's going to – he's going to play jokes. You know, there's that great meme on – or, or – or, GIF or whatever, however the hell, GIF, whatever you pronounce it as, on uh, on Twitter of you know Manu sticking the the empty Gatorade cup under Tim's seat just as yep. Tim is sitting down and he's jumping up and down all happy when he gets him. So you know that's that's just who Manu is and that's a very normal Manu thing. Is you know he's just as as phenomenal of a basketball player. He's a great human being, a great guy, and just fun to be around. But you got to keep your eye out. You know, he, he might be playing a prank here or there. That's that's another great story, Mo. And, you know, as I said, we love to hate Manu when it, when it comes to his on-court stuff, particularly as Suns fans. But, you know, I, I've got nothing for respect for him. And, you know, the, the debates on Twitter when he retired around his, his Hall of Fame candidacy were, were kind of silly to me. He's kind of a lock for me. and, and It's a no-brainer. And anybody who wants to argue whether he is or isn't is uh, very much showing their uh, unintelligence in, in terms of basketball. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely a, a lock. And one other thing I'll say about him being a great human being is, as David mentioned, Suns fans hated that guy in the 2000s mainly because he just kept beating our teams. But when the Suns finally got over that hump and we swept them in, in the 2010 semis, he was the first guy at the podium in the news conference just praising the Suns, saying he was so glad that's the team that, that finally you know, unearthed them, just praising Steve Nash, praising the whole organization. So just a class act, great guy. Uh, we'll have fond memories of him uh, for a long time going forward. Yeah, so I, I think we should, we should jump into the main part of the pod now, Max. And as you mentioned in the intro, this is kind of the perfect encore to our positional pod series because we did a lot of discussion in those five episodes around development of the young guys and, and how guys are going to project going forward. So, Mo, I wanted to jump in first with kind of draft analysis. I, I noticed that on jumpball.net when you you know explain yourself and, and your career to date, you, you talked a, a little bit about preparation for, for drafts. So, can you give us a, a brief run through, you know, what a, a typical video coordinator's role is in in preparing for the draft, or you know, maybe what your role specifically was when it came up to draft time? Yeah, you know, the the truth of the matter is, teams are preparing for the draft, you know, as early as soon as the other one ends. 
You know, so as soon as this past draft ended, yeah. they're beginning to prepare for the 2019 NBA draft. And that's kind of a, a focus, you know, and it starts from everything in terms of just gathering film and putting together a list of guys and, and whatnot. Luckily, with Synergy now, it's kind of made it a lot easier, especially on video coordinators, to kind of pull together uh, a film or, or even just the front office not even having to have to go to the video coordinator to just kind of pull up film on whoever they want to watch, whether it's a European player or a college player. Or, or a G leaguer for that matter. Yeah. You know, um, it is something that when I was in the video room, we always had an intern who was designated as the main guy who was going to handle a lot of the draft work, you know, and that was something for somebody that would really want it to be more in the front office and less in coaching that, mm-hmm. that person to kind of focus more on the draft. They would help out with NBA games during the season and, and whatnot, but their, but their main, thing was making sure the front office always had the film they needed on guys and were prepared and 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 had anything any requests they wanted now of course once the season ends it kind of becomes all right everybody in the video room kind of jumps in on that you know and again it's it's very simple it's not just all film you know when we bring players in for draft workouts we're on the floor helping out with that we're you know keeping stats of of how these guys are shooting and and whatnot and and again also having somebody film the the draft work it's out themselves and then kind of cutting it up so that, you know, the, the coaches in the front office can all take a look at the, the, the workouts or go back to it later if need be to kind of confirm or, or prove a point or something. It's, it's a year round thing. We're constantly working on it. We're constantly grinding on it, you know, and, and from that point, you know, you're, you're kind of at the direction of the, the front office, you know, in terms of how, how much or how little do they need, you know, and, and, and again, with, with kind of the way things have changed, you know, Synergy has made it a lot easier before, you know, I started as a video room intern and the draft was my main responsibility Mm -hmm. and I had to break down the college games. We didn't really have Synergy. Synergy wasn't quite taking off as much as it has now. So, you know, I had to break down the games and provide, you know, edits in in terms of you know we called them activity edits for every time a player did something he was marked and then we had just a minutes edit and just kept his minutes but you know you kind of want the game to be streamlined so you know the coach doesn't have to watch a whole game he can kind of you know we, we would show free throws but we would kind of minimize how much is being shown and and whatnot and kind of cut through the action to make it easier for the coaches to digest so you know it's, it's a lot easier now but at the same time just because we have all the technology doesn't mean the demands and requests aren't even a little more extreme from the coaches now because they assume we can just get everything. Yeah, and, and you mentioned workouts there. They obviously come pretty late in the piece and GMs try and get around and, and watch players uh, in person as much as possible. But you know, is film really still the the kind of main driver when it comes to breaking down a, a prospect is that kind of you know what percentage would you put on that and and can you even think of a story where film you know maybe even played a really crucial part in in drafting or maybe not drafting a player in in your experience well you know i think it's more it's it's everything's in equal parts stats your 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 the film uh your scouts who have seen him up close and in person your background information on the the player your your um you know, just your feel on him and, and, and whatnot. I think it's kind of, uh, there's all these things, the workout, they all kind of come into play. Like no one is more important than the other. They're all kind of a piece yeah. to the puzzle. So I think that's kind of the, the thing, you know, and, and draft workouts can be misleading. You know, a guy can just shoot the hell out of the ball one day or just shoot, you know, shoot poorly yeah. one day, but he's still a hell of a shooter. He just had a bad shooting day. You know, some of these kids are on their third workout in four days in, 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 in you know, three different cities. You know, and and and, yep. and and rest kind of takes a play. You know, 
role in that. And and there's a whole bunch of things that kind of go into it. You know, I can't come, I can't really come up to just like one story into specifically, but I was with the Clippers when we drafted DeAndre Jordan. And, you know, the thing was DeAndre Jordan had fallen out of the first round. Now, understand before, you know, going into that college season, he was considered a top five pick, mm-hmm. you know, and just the way things worked out with Texas A&M, he didn't get a lot of minutes. He had issues with the coaching staff. He had things like that. And he slowly just kind of felt, was falling and falling. Then he was going to be a late lottery pick. Then the draft happens and we're looking and all of a sudden we realize he's going to be available late in the, or I'm sorry, early in the second round. And, you know, at that point, then we're just, you know, then we're pumping in and, and this is going to be a bit dated, but then we're pulling out the DVDs of DeAndre Jordan to make sure, to make sure the coaches know what they're getting and, and, and who he is and whatnot. So, you know, the film definitely helped in that instance, but at the same time, you know, Neil O'Shea was our director of player personnel. Uh, Mike Dunleavy was the, the GM coach at that point. And we all knew who DeAndre Jordan was. So I don't, you know, I think we're, we were locked in on him. If he was available for us at the second round, we were drafting him and, and we got lucky and he was and turned out to be a hell of a player for us. Yeah, and that's probably a great segue into my next question, which is was going to be about DeAndre Ayton and a couple of the other guys that the Suns drafted. What I know you're a keen follower. What were kind of your pre-draft uh, thoughts on uh, you know Ayton specifically, and and then maybe Mikael Bridges and and Ali Okobo as an international guy? Yeah, you know. To, to preface it, and, and this usually ends up getting me in trouble with a lot of people, I don't watch a ton of college <laughs> basketball. You know, um, yeah. I'm, I'm not the draft Nick I used to be. I dive full into NBA season all the way to the playoffs. I enjoy the draft, and I try to cram as much as I can right around draft day, but I'm not – I don't dive in as much as I probably should during the season to, to be truthful. You know, my mm-hmm. thing with DeAndre and I think he has a chance to be really good. He's got a great NBA body. You know, my biggest concern, and I saw it more in summer league, was, you know, I didn't feel like he played with a lot of force. I didn't feel like there was, you know, with, with the body he has, I feel like he should be able to manhandle some of these guys at summer league. Maybe not at the NBA level, but at summer league, th- these aren't all NBA level players you're playing against. And I yeah. felt at times he just didn't play with a real amount of force that you would want somebody with his size. And when I mean that, I don't mean you know, just running over people or trucking people and whatnot, but just kind of holding a post position, you know, and, and, and not allowing the defender to get around front and front him, you know, there's, there's, those are the things that I kind of was concerned about, you know, when he's setting a screen, you know, I don't, I don't feel like he's a great screen setter, you know, and, and, and everybody's like, well, so what, you're not drafting him to be a screen setter, but that plays a role. Cause then when you're setting that screen and then rolling to the basket, that's how you get open. You set a good screen, you're the one that's going to be open because the defense is going to overreact to that. So I think, you know, there, there. I definitely have my questions about him in that regard. But, you know, he's listen, he's a talent. There's no question about it. Again, I still stand by. I still think they probably would have been better off drafting Doncic, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, it's not to say that Aiton can't play and that I'm not rooting for him. I, I just not, I'm not sure he's the, not 100% sure he's the guy that they, they specifically needed or, or is going to be the, the, the such a key piece as everybody hopes for. Mikael Bridges is a great pickup. It was a little bit costly, I think, in, in, in trading away that pick. You know, I think that's going to, that hopefully won't come back to haunt the Suns. But, you know, an unprotected pick with Miami that has a chance of Miami not looking really good in a couple of years, that one might hurt. And it might go the other way, and Miami might get a couple of free agents or something, and all of a sudden that pick is going to be a late first round pick and 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 that might pan out we, we won't know for a few years but one thing I do know is I really do like Mikhail Bridges if I did watch a college player a lot of times it was him just because he's a prototypical player that we want in the NBA now right a three and d wing yeah long athletic he defends his butt off 
He comes from a winning culture at Villanova. You know, he, he he's kind of what you want, and he's something that the Suns have been missing. I know they signed Trevor Ariza, and that's going to be great because he can kind of sort of show the ways a little bit to the guys like Mikael Bridges and and so on. But you know, it's it's a learning process as a rookie. But he's he's a good prospect, and he's going to be somebody that you know. Listen. Teams in the NBA, including contenders, are stepping over themselves to try to find these types of guys. And, you know, if he pans out, you know, that's going to be great for Phoenix. They're going to have a guy that's on a rookie deal for the next few years that, that they're going to have under control that legitimately can play. And, and, and I think he could step in for any team right now and be a 3 and D guy. Okoba, I, I, unfortunately, I'm probably not as familiar with him as I should be. You know, I know he was a bit intriguing a bit at Summer League. Um, but I'll be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not as up-to-date or, or where I should be in terms of having scouted him. So I'm going to have to just kind of leave that one as an incomplete. Yeah, no worries there. We have, we have some trouble with that too sometimes. Not a lot out there on him. But let's go ahead and move into like the summer development of these players. And let's use Aiton as an example because you obviously identified many of the issues with him that we also have identified in this podcast, a lot of the physicality problems and, and stuff like that. When you were a video coordinator with the, the Spurs and Clippers, did you guys use summer league film to focus on weaknesses like that? Or did you guys not do that as much? Like, how, how exactly do you use summer league as a developmental tool going forward? Yeah, you know, we would use it in sort of just to kind of keep a, you know, it's development. It's, it's listen, the film doesn't lie, mm-hmm. right? You can show what the guy is doing or not doing and, and, and kind of point these things out. It's your approach. It's how you go about it. It's. You know, are you are, are and especially like a, a rookie, like you know, these coaches are learning him as they're going through summer league. You know, this is they're they're trying to figure out the best ways to approach him. Is he a guy that, you know, you need to kind of be a little more careful when you go to talk to him, or or you know, do you need to treat him with kid gloves, or is he a guy you can kind of just say bluntly, like, yo, you screwed up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's one of those things. I think you definitely use it, you know, and 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 run through it. You you probably don't hammer him too much in summer league. Summer league's relatively pretty light, but. You want to point out a few things, and, and, and it allows you to kind of help in the process. I mean, film is, just, again, It's this is going to be a common theme, but film is just a piece of the puzzle. Every part of this is just a piece of a bigger puzzle, you know, and, and, and if the player is receptive and he's going to sit down and watch film, he can learn a lot, and, and, and it shows you a lot of things of, you know, this is how, you know, you kind of improve. Uh, a great example is what the Utah Jazz has done with Donovan Mitchell, uh, Tim McMahon from ESPN wrote a phenomenal piece, probably one of my favorite things written over the year, mainly because it had a lot of film aspect to it, which made me feel kind of (laughs) happy. But, you know, he wrote a great piece about how the Jazz really are using film in terms of bringing Donovan along and and kind of helping him and and, and showing him things, and it's helping improve his game. And he's very receptive to it. You know, you got to have the players got to be willing to, to see this and hear it and kind of encode it and understand it. So I think that's kind of part of the puzzle so I think for the Suns that's something that they got to be able to show any of their players like hey look this is something we're, we're going to show you this is the times you did it right this is the times you did it wrong you know I always try to end clips with a positive note you know you want to leave the have the guy leaving a little bit but like hey this is what we're seeing this is you know this is when you do it right this is what it looks like you know and hopefully you'll have a couple of clips of him doing it right sometimes you don't <laughs> and you're sort of screwed but you know it, it, it's just a big it's a big part of the puzzle there was definitely some uh yeah positive signs from Aiton in summer league so i definitely hope the suns can focus on those and and bring them up with the big fellow in terms of looking at film after and you touched on another great point there and and, and something i just wanted to bring up again is uh, i'm really glad that eagle coached summer league um and and didn't allow another coach to to get first dibs on Aiton because 
Um, you know, you saw a lot of stuff there between the two of them developing that that chemistry early on, which, you know, as you noted, Mo, sounds like it's a, a pretty important thing for a, a coach and, and his new young stud to, to do early on. Yeah, I, I, you can't replicate this stuff. You know, I think it's important to get on the same page right away. I mean, it's a, it's a historical story almost at this point, but, you know, when the Spurs drafted Tim Duncan, you know, Coach Popovich went and spent time in the Virgin Islands with with him. Now let's, let's be honest, the Virgin Islands are a night is a hell of a place to chill and get to hang out. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he spent time to really get to know who Tim Duncan is, and and he understood how important this guy is going to be. So you know, he wanted to understand what makes him tick. How, you know, and 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 kind of that's such an important part of coaching that doesn't get talked about. Coaching is all thought about it just X's and O's and your rotations and your lineups and how are you getting these guys in and stuff. But you got to know how these guys tick and how they work. You're part psychologist when you're a coach. You got to know, you want to know yeah. how these guys are going to react, you know, and, and who can you count on when, you know, when, when stuff gets hard, you know, this is my show again, how old I am, but a, a, a real world reference, you know, the, the opening credits is, you know, you got to figure out when people, you know, things get tough and people start acting real, you got to figure out who's going to do what and who you can depend on. And I think that's such an important thing. So you know, you see it up more and more with coaches who are just starting out for the first time, first season, and it, a lot of them will kind of step in and take their, you know, coach their summer league team. So it was good to see, you know, Coach Igor do that. Yeah. So as you mentioned, relationships are obviously huge when you're talking about professional sports. That might be the biggest thing between a team and its players. So how does a team relate to players during the summer? I think it probably, as you mentioned, probably varies from player to player, but. Do teams try to step in and, you know, create summer off-season workout programs for players? Like, you often see players do their own pickup stuff. The Suns fans recently were obsessing over Booker playing with Kevin Durant and some other guys. Uh, teams obviously are probably cool with that kind of stuff, but do teams also try to, you know, intervene and, and set up their own regimens up, or how, how does that generally work? Yeah, you know, every team's and every organization's different in how they operate, you know. Listen, every team would want all their players to constantly be working out in their facility so that they can constantly keep an eye on and monitor everything, right? Like, that mm-hmm. that's not a realistic thing. Um yeah, you know the the truth of the matter is, I've been part of organizations where they've flown the player development out, you know, the player development coaches to different cities to work with guys, you know, in their hometowns and whatnot. You know, you want the guys to get away in the summertime and get a chance to relax. And you know, we've I've seen coaches fly to Indiana, to Oklahoma, and and whatnot to work with guys. Now it seems that everybody kind of just ends up in LA <laughs> altogether. So, you know, and you have teams that kind of just send a contingent of guys, coaches out here to work with their guys and, and whatnot. And a lot of times you see guys working all in individual drills and stuff in the morning and then playing games in the afternoons. Uh, I think it's a common occurrence now. It's a normal thing. I, you know, it's funny that Suns fans are concerned that Devin Booker's playing with KD in pickup games, but you know, the, the honest truth is that's where I'd want him to be playing. I'd want him going against the best. I wouldn't want him to just be playing against, you know, D-leaguers or whatnot. And, you know, every organization kind of has their gym open and has their own open runs going. And you, you want your guys playing against the best level of talent. And now it's easy to just kind of kind of sucks a little bit for the development guys and, and, and some of the strength coaches and stuff who've got to travel with these guys. You know, they, they don't get much of an off season, but that's kind of the job. You know, those, this is one those guys that really can put in the most work and and really add to their game. So, you know, you let the guys do it wherever they want to do it. And as long as you can get a gym set up and, and get ready to go and, and, and get the guys working for a couple hours a day, you know, it's, it, it, every organization is kind of going to be okay with it. I think they'll put in a plan with rookies just so the rookies kind of have an understanding of it because most of them don't know what they're doing. 
And, you know, from there, it kind of just evolves. And, you know, they it starts as soon as exit meetings. You know, as soon as the season ends and they have exit meetings, teams are meeting with players saying, like, this is what we want you to work on and this is what we think you need and this is our plan. How does that work for you? It's kind of a you got to work with each other there a bit. And I think, you know, the organizations that are willing to kind of work with their players and, and, and be accommodating to their players are the ones that you tend to find that have the most success in development. Oh, yeah, and don't misunderstand me. The Suns fans are actually aren't concerned about that. They actually all think that Kevin Durant's going to be a Phoenix Sun next summer now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, we'll see about that one. So, one last thing. Let's go into training camp here. You know, we talked a lot about development so far. Is training camp more of like a developmental set for players, or is it more about getting a team more, you know, cohesive? about practicing what you're going to do in the season. Uh, training camp's about the upcoming season. You know, the mm. summer is about development. Coach Chad Forcier, who's now with the Memphis Grizzlies, um, but I was with him with the Spurs, you know, that's the time you, the summer's when you develop players. It's when they get to go into their lab, you know, we, we you know, like a mad scientist and start, you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't work and trying to add a skill and all of that. And, and of course, individual work happens during training camp. Of course, you're going to have that and, and, and work on that stuff. But the ultimate goal out of training camp is is beginning to put together the plan of, of how we're going to play this season. You know, we're going to you're going to put in your offensive sets. You're going to put in your defensive rotations and and how you want to handle situations and establish your philosophy. Training camp is extremely important for coaches to have a good camp, you know, to make sure that they have guys healthy. You know, it's it's funny, like when a coach kind of gets let go during the season and, and the interim coach kind of takes over. You know, it, it, people don't understand how important that training camp is because that interim coach may have had a different philosophy on certain things, but they don't have a training camp to really get to put in their plans. Or when they make a midseason trade like the, the Pelicans when they got Boogie Cousins, you know, it's it's a he's a huge piece that you got to incorporate in the office. It's hard to do on the fly during the season, but in training camp, that's really where you get to establish those things. So training camp's really more about setting up the next season and, and developing what, you know, what you're going to be, what, what's our identity, how are we going to, this is how we're going to defend things and stuff like that. Things will change during the season and, and you might change your philosophy a little bit, but, but training camp's your best opportunity to really kind of instill the identity and philosophy and, 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 and evaluate and place your, your guys in certain roles. A great couple of points from Mo there, Max, in terms of, you know, Eagle taking this team over, uh, and this being his first training camp this off season, it's obviously going to be very important to to redesign the offense and the defense too. And uh, you know, also from Mo, there a, a little bit of sympathy towards Jay Triano having to take over the team with right. three games into the season. And uh, you know, I'm sure he would have loved to go back a couple of months and and have his own training camp with the team. And it's not even that, you know, it goes a lot of coaches and a lot of teams start coaches retreats before training camp, you know, and. And that's where the coaches sit there and fight with each other about what they should be doing. Yep. It's kind of that sort of they go to their war room. Sometimes, you know, they uh, just regular meetings in the in the office or sometimes, you know, they, they travel somewhere and they literally just have entire few days together bunkered down in a hotel conference room and, and, and yelling at each other, you know, and, and, and figuring out what do we want to do or, you know, and that's that's kind of the time where they sort of start crafting their plan. That's something that I thought I found was difficult for Oklahoma City last year, you know, they pulled off the mellow trade like two or three days before media day. You know, Billy Donovan at that point had been spending the whole summer figuring out how he's going to work in Paul George with Russell Westbrook. Now you've had a third big piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that had to have thrown them for a loop, at least in the first few days of training camp of how we're going to figure this out. So 
you know, timing matters. All these things play a part in it. You know, everybody starts preparing like right about now, right after Labor Day. For all you Aussies, that's an American holiday. I know you Aussies have several holidays. I've, I've never seen a nation with so many holidays and you guys. But the uh, but that's, you know, that's kind of the mark of when things start rolling for the NBA. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Something that Max and I have touched on in previous pods is particularly around the point guard position where I think we've seen with the Suns in past off seasons, maybe the, the biggest mistake Ryan McDonough has made is he's left things really late. You know, he dragged on the Eric Bledsoe situation and, and kind of forced... Uh, Bledsoe to to make the call there and you know we've seen a lot of that in-season moves which uh, removes that consistency that you talked about and 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 doesn't really give the team the the best chance to succeed so I think with the Suns this year I think we're going to see maybe a little bit of a different approach where they're they're kind of maybe set already for for this offseason and going to go into training camp but I wanted to go back to what you said about the rookies and, and the teams being very much in control of their summers. What about the vets? I mean, the Suns are a pretty young team, but um, you know we've got guys like Tyson Chandler, Trevor Ariza, who we've just signed. Are they you know really just taking care of their bodies in the summer? Are they focusing on you know maybe one key aspect of their game? I, I know you worked pretty closely with Jamal Crawford with your time with the Clippers. So you know how does the the philosophy change for the vets versus maybe the younger guys who are working on a bit of everything. Yeah, you know, it's vets are veterans. You know, they've been through it before. You're not gonna you're not gonna treat Tyson Chandler the same way you treat DeAndre Ayton. Um, you know, at, yeah. at this point, Tyson Chandler knows what he needs to be how to be ready for the next season and and how to prepare. You know, we've seen a big change in the NBA where ninety percent of these guys come into camp already in shape. You know, in the past. You had guys that would use training camp to get into shape. You know, now it's a different story mm. where guys are coming in pretty much in shape and ready to go and ready to roll. You know, I think this is kind of the time where you start to see it. So, you know, you you, you know what your vets are doing. You're, you're, you're checking in with these guys. You have an understanding of who's doing what and, and whatnot. You, you give your veterans leeway. You know, the longer they're in the league, the the further along you, you, you kind of trust them. Uh, you know, with Devin Booker, who's a relatively young guy, but now – He's the franchise player. He's huge max contract. You know, it's it's all on him. The organization is definitely going to want to know what he's up to, but they're also not going to be overbearing because the truth is, they don't have that much control during the off season. This is when the guys get a chance to relax and go on vacations and whatnot. And you kind of want them to. You know, there are. I've been again. I've I've been around where where teams have told players like, hey, we don't want you to touch the ball for a month. Like we don't want you in the gym. Yeah. We don't want you doing anything. Go chill out. You know, whatever. Go chill on a beach for a while, and 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 all of that stuff. So, you know, veterans have have an understanding, and 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 when you've been through it a few times, you know what you need to get ready. You you understand what you're doing. Um, and if you're not doing the work, you also know you're not doing the work, and you're going to be really screwed come training camp. <laughs> yeah. You know. So there's always those things, and 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 sometimes you have the the uh, team you know, strength coach or whatever will, will, will send you a list of things of like, Hey, we're doing, we're, you need to be able to run this, you know, by the second day of training camp, whatever, uh, nine minutes. That's, that's slow. That's, that's my time, but like an eight minute mile or whatever, you know, you need to be able to run this or do this or run seven teams, seventeens, you know, down and backs by this much time or whatnot. So kind of setting yeah. goals for guys to work on stuff. So there's always kind of, there's always the constant level of communication, but at the same time, they can't. The teams can't find you. They can't. They can't put you in that situation um, during the off season. So you know they 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 guide rookies. It's easier with rookies because they just don't have an understanding of what's going on. But at the same time, 
you know, veterans know and they've been through it. So it's it's a different kind of deal. And after you've gone through it a few years, then you kind of have an understanding of like, okay, this is the amount of time I need to put in the off season. And, and, and it's different per guy. You know, some guys are, hey, I need to redo my shot. I need to be in the gym Monday through Thursday, you know, three hours a day, wor- just working on my shot. You know, everybody's kind of got a different deal. So it's different per player and, and, and organizations kind of just sort of follow along and got to respect that. Yeah, so that kind of makes a lot of sense with the, the rookies versus the vets. But kind of moving into in-season now and, and scouting and, and a little bit of development stuff, Moa, you tweeted out a, a great thread around the schedule announcement time, which people listening to this pod haven't seen. I'm sure that they can find it on your timeline. But it was kind of discussing the, the role of a video scout and, and life on the road. So can you discuss that for anyone who hasn't seen it? You know, what's life like on the road as a video scout? Do, do you even see the team and uh you know how much are the players reading those scouting reports that uh you're putting all that work into yeah so there's two different positions right there's the advanced scout position which is the one i was talking about who's traveling constantly they're on the road they're always ahead of the team they're always going to see other teams you know that if you're playing oklahoma city uh they're gonna go you know check out you know the two oklahoma city games before they play phoenix so that they can have a report in. They're they're rarely in town. They're rarely around the team. It's yep. a, it's a, it's to be honest, it is a very very tough position because you're traveling 25 out of 30 days a month, constantly in a different city. You're not flying with the team. You're not flying, you know, private or anything like that. You're flying coach on different airlines, staying in hotels, constantly moving around and and things like that. And and you're in a different gym each night and all of that. So it's it's a very difficult thing and then you have a, a, a jerk of a video guy like myself screaming where are my call sheets where are my play calls what's this play what <laughs> what do they call this you know and you you, you got to deal with this young punk and you know it's 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 kind of a it's a tough position in that regard so it's a it's, it's a challenge and it's important for the video co- coordinator and and the advanced scout to be on the same page to know when we're getting those play calls and and which games they're going to and and hey if you're going to this game you you should also watch the other team because we play them not too far from now. So if you see anything, you know, pointed out, um, I think there's a, it's, it's just a hard job in general as a video coordinator on the road. It's, it's a little difficult because, you know, we're really dependent on the internet and it's great when you're at your home office, you know, or, or the, the practice facility, because you pay for the best internet you possibly can have. You know, your, your stuff flies when you're there. If anybody who's traveled, yeah. they know how bad, <laughs> they know how slow hotel internet is, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm in a position where I need to download a game and I need, you know, my my video assistants who have broken it down are sending me the data to, to import into the game, you know, and, and, and that could take an entire night, you know, and, and, and hopefully that'll work out. I mean, the number of times I've woken up where I found out the, the download stopped in the middle of the night and I got to go to a coach going like, Hey, we don't have that game yet. You know, they don't want to hear me say like, yo, the internet's slow. What, what can I do? It's a tough, it's tough in that situation and you're in a tough bind, but overall, I mean, it's just a matter of coordinating constantly and being aware of it. You know, uh, some teams don't even have an advanced scout anymore and they have several regional scouts, which is basically somebody who, if they live in LA, you know, LA is a great place to have a regional scout because you have the Lakers and Clippers. So you're going to see teams multiple times. Yeah. Also, it's easy to send your scout from LA to Phoenix or LA to San Francisco or Sacramento. Like those are easy trips that are relatively cheap and, and, and you can kind of just get things done relatively easy. So, you know, regional scouts are 
they're 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 never around the team really because they're they're, they're kind of almost like a third party, you know, and a regional scout might work for multiple teams. And, and, and that's something that's a, a, a possibility, but, you know, as a video coordinator, you're, you're responsible for those things and coordinating the regional scouts schedule and, and making sure they have a credential at the game waiting for them and, and ready to roll. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a whole challenge. And as soon as the schedule comes out in August, like I had tweeted out, you immediately put together your calendar and, and, and understand who you're playing and which games you need to be at. And, Now's the time where scouts are beginning to plan their travel and where they're going and, and whatnot, and video coordinators are working with them, figuring out which games to go to. So, Mo, the way you describe the season, it's obviously hectic. There's so much going on. There's probably not a lot of time for in-season development. The Phoenix Suns had sort of an interesting situation last year where Josh Jackson was one of the worst players in the NBA for like the first half-ish of the season, and then the second half-ish of the season, he got benched once. Sharano started talking to him. He started watching film, and he just sort of exploded and was just a much, much better player. In your experience, has anything like that ever happened before, and has the reason been because of you know any kind of in-season development in terms of tape watching or whatever, or is it just sort of like, I don't know, you know, the, the, the famous cliche, it just clicks for a player? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's just kind of, you know, at a certain point, like Josh Jackson would be a great example where I could see Triano sitting him down going like, look, dude, are you happy with the season you're having? You know, and, and, and if he's responding like, no, I don't, I don't think I've lived up to whatever, like then let's start going to the film room and studying or, Hey, you need to put extra time in the gym. You know, the, the, the thing about it for players is, you know, there are players who come in just for practice and leave as soon as practice ends. And, and, and we all mm-hmm. notice that. And that's, that's fine if you're killing on the court, but if you're not playing well on the court and you're just kind of showing up right when practice begins and you're the first one out, that's a sign of like, Hey man, you got to start putting in more work, whether it's in the film room, whether it's on the court with our development guys. And, you know, as a development in season, you're not going to change somebody's shot mid season. You're not mm-hmm. going to try to put them through that. That's, that's an off season in the lab kind of thing. What you're going to do though, is get them reps, get them comfortable, show them where their shots are going to be on the court and start just getting them used to being in those right positions. So I think that's kind of more likely. And, 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 it's a cliche, but it's a good one. <laughs> Sometimes it just kind of all comes together. You know, uh, I don't know how many people are a fan of the A-team. Um, I'm old. This really sucks. <laughs> We're old too, don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, when Murdoch just says it, man, hey, I love it when a plan comes together. I mean, sometimes it all just comes together. We've all had moments in life where something you couldn't figure it out. And then just honestly, just all of a sudden it clicks and you're just like, oh, I get it now. It just kind of happens that way sometimes. So, you know, the, the players got to put in the work. You know, that's the most important thing about development. Teams can have the best shooting coaches, the best development coaches, the best video coordinators, the best scouts, everything else. But it all starts with the player taking it in and and, and, and studying it and, and making a point to take advantage of these things. It's the phrase, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of it, you know, and and that's sort of the deal there. Like players got to take advantage of what's in front of them. And that's that's where it makes the, that's the most important part of development. And that's where the first credit should always go to when a player is developing and you, and you see him improving should always start with the players because they're the ones putting them in the most work. They're the ones doing it. And then the video guy, because, you know, I did some stuff. <laughs> of course, the video guy. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, I think the, the biggest reason why Devin Booker has been the one to succeed in this awful situation the Suns have had for the past few years is just because Devin Booker's dedicated. He's competitive. He wants to be great. I think he's doing a lot of it on his own. That's, that's a great point, Max. And I think, you know, something I've noted recently is, 
you know, as he becomes a leader for this team, hopefully that attitude uh, and that motivation from Booker, even after getting his, you know, giant extension this offseason is what pulls some of these guys uh, into line. It's interesting what Mo uh, touched on there with, with guys kind of coming into the gym and then leaving again uh, at first uh, opportunity they get. You know, we've, we've heard things like that around guys like Dragon Bender and, um, you know, he obviously hasn't had the best development so far in the first couple of years in, in the NBA. So, uh, yeah, hopefully Booker can drag some of these young guys with him. And, you know, Josh is another guy who is, a, you know, noted as a, a pretty hard worker. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we see that that development come along for a few a few other guys other than Devin Booker this season. Yeah. One other thing, too, is, you know, and this is kind of what's been tough for the, the Suns is continuity matters, you know, and, and continuity within your coaching staff. You guys tell me, how many coaches has Devin Booker played for? Two or, or more than that? You know, three? Uh, this will be his fourth. Four. I mean, that's that's hard. You know, um, we I don't know how many guys are, are, are American football fans, but, you know, we always they always talk about quarterbacks having to learn several different offenses when they constantly are changing the offensive coordinator. It's hard. You know, a yeah. coach is going to come in and change the entire staff, and now it's a new staff coming in and a new development coach and a new program and, 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 and a whole new offense, and it's, and it's difficult. It's very hard when you don't have that continuity. You know, a lot of the successful teams in the NBA have had seriously strong continuity within their coaching staff. You know, the Spurs are the the golden standard. Like we get it, right? Twenty years or, or however long Pop's been there. You know, but you have you know Brad Stevens having you know in in Boston. You know, he's going to be there for a long time. You have Steve Kerr now already a few years there. You know, continuity matters. It makes a big difference. And, and that's something the Suns haven't had, and it's hurt these guys in development. And that's something that, does, that doesn't get talked about a lot, but that's something that matters. So this has been really great, but awesome. It was, it was really great to hear all of your insight on that stuff. I think it's going to really help the listeners understand how players and teams develop. But before we go, we do this every single week. We have a seven seconds or less segment where one of David or I prepares three questions for which the other has not had any time to prepare and for which the other only has seven seconds or less to answer. Mo, you up to it? Sure, let's do it. All right, we've we've got some pretty easy ones here, so I won't test you guys too much, but uh, going all the way back to the start of the episode and some talk around the Australian national team, uh, I'll throw this one at you first, Mo, and then we'll go to Max. So Canada or Australia as the next country to challenge Team USA at an Olympics? It's Australia. We don't even need, I don't even need one second. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll run over the, the teams a little more. You've got Simmons, Maker, Ingalls, Mills, Delavadova, Baines, Bolden, Brokoff, and Exum. And we've got Josh Green to come as well for the Boomers. And, and Canada have obviously got Wiggins, Thompson, uh, Barrett's coming, SGA's going to be there, uh, Olinick, Murray. Lyles, Max, uh, what what do you reckon? Uh, I'm going with Australia just because of Ben Simmons basically alone, but I'll tell you right now, R.J. Barrett could swing that. Yeah, Just goes back to continuity, though, too. All of these Australian guys have been playing together since I was there. Great point. Just as we just talked about how it matters for the Suns in terms of the development, it matters in these, especially in these kinds of tournaments because these guys are so used to playing with each other. That's, that's a great point, Mo, and I'll throw to the next question with that in mind. Uh, what's one surprise team, Mo, that uh, you expect to come out firing to start the season? To be honest, I'm, I, I kind of expect the Memphis Grizzlies to to come out firing, and, and if they can stay healthy, I think they're really going to challenge in the West for a playoff spot. Yep, Max? 
So surprise seems to be the wrong word, but I think OKC is going to be really, really, really good and surprise maybe people with how good they actually are. And, and some more continuity there going off Mo's point. So that, that, both great ones there. And this is a little bit of uh, a coincidence with, with Mo driving home that continuity point. But question three, we saw the likes of Victor Oladipo thrive in a new situation last season. So if you've got one guy that you're you're looking for that story to be this season, uh, either on his uh, new team or in an increased role, uh, who would you say that might be, Mo? Uh, I'm actually going to stay in Indiana, and I I think this might be a big year for Miles Turner. Uh, I think he's putting a lot of work. You, you know, we saw the pictures of of the before and after, and he looks ripped now, and he's he's taking it more serious. Omiyam Yamasuk uh, at ESPN wrote a great piece about how he's embraced doing yoga and, and changing his diet and, and all of these things. I think he might be poised to have that, that big leap that people were expecting to happen last year. I think it's just going to happen this year. I think he might be the guy. Great. Max, you got one? Yeah, I'm going to go back to my last podcast, talk about D'Angelo Russell. I think that that guy just needs to stay healthy. He's got all the talent in the world. And if he can just put a string together you know, a real 82-game season, I think there's a lot to be seen from him. More, more continuity talk there, Max. I love it. So thank you so much, David. Uh, Mo, again, you were awesome. Great insight. Thanks so much for everything. Please plug anything you'd want. Oh, fellas, just thank you so much for having me. You can find my stuff on thejumpball.net. Follow me on Twitter. I'm constantly posting whatever I do. Um, I have a YouTube page, a, a podcast called The Jump Ball. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, you won't ever really kind of miss out on my stuff unless you mute me which i feel like most people do <laughs> now you're you're a great nba follow on twitter one of my favorites mo and uh, we really appreciate you coming on no thank you guys for having me yeah everybody please give mo a follow and also while you're at it give us a follow i'm at max mcc 11 on twitter david's at the four point play on twitter and our podcast is at seven sol pod on Twitter. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us. David, thanks, man. Thanks, Max. And uh, for the listeners, we'll be moving into some training camp stuff and some other preseason stuff. And, you know, the season's really only a month away now, guys. So we're almost through the off season, and we might cover some division previews going forward in, in future episodes as well. So thanks again, Mo, and thanks, Max. Thanks, everyone.